Sketches from Scripture presents Wandering, Wisdom from the Wilderness A teaching series from the stories of the Torah Wandering is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be continuing our exploration of the narrative structure and style of the books of the Torah, focusing primarily on the book of Numbers. This study will give us context for a better understanding of Scripture. It will help us trust more in these Scriptures by demystifying them. Taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events and real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast reminds you that even in times of wilderness wandering, the Creator of heaven and earth is with you. If you enjoy this podcast, Please share it with others. So tonight we're going to be looking at Numbers chapters 15 through 18. So if you want to uh, get your uh, Bible in front of you, uh, or have um, have a Bible that is um, on your phone or your iPad or something like that. Um, that's where you can find it. Looks like I'm getting maybe some stream dropouts, um, so I'll just keep going and hopefully, hopefully you guys are are picking it up out there. So we're looking at Numbers 15. I'm going to read parts of 15 through 18. I'm going to skip over some some parts, but I'm going to read kind of big sections, and then we'll do some some talking, okay? All right, so Numbers chapter 15. All right, um, <clears throat> so I'm not going to read the very first part of 15, but I do want to point out what is going on here in the, the text, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read a section that talk, pertains to what we're going to talk about tonight. So at the very beginning, the uh, Lord speaks to Moses, speak to the Israelites, you shall say to them, when you come to the land of your settlement that I'm about to give you, shall make a fire offering to the Lord and a burnt offering or a sacrifice, a voluntary offering. So he's sort of re-going over some of the offerings, some of the things that they're going to do when they get to the promised land, which now we've just learned they have been, um, you know, punished. They're going to be waiting in the wilderness 40 years now. And so the Lord is telling them, okay, I'm telling you now because everyone listening now is going to, you know, die before you get to the promised land. So I'm giving you the instructions now so that you can pass it on so that it can get to uh, where it is that you need to go. And he's also talking about some uh, sin offerings and some things kind of like that, burn offerings. So picking up somewhere around verse uh, 29, the Lord says, and for the native among the Israelites, this is where we're beginning, and for the native among the Israelites and for the sojourner who resides in their midst, one teaching shall there be for them, for him who does inerrancy. All right, so a little clunky translation here. So let me tell you what that means. So it says the native among the Israelites. So they're kind of picking up people as they move around, sounds like. Right. So the natives, the people that live there as the Israelites wander through, there's some people who go, hey, I, I kind of want to do what they're doing. And so they they move in there or they're trading, you know, people sort of doing some trading or something around the outskirts of the camp, possibly. And this is the sojourner. So you remember that there's these people that left Egypt with the Israelites during the Exodus. We call them the Erev Rav or the Riff Raff. 
right? And so um, they are traveling with them. And so what the Lord is saying is for people who are not Israelites, whether they're natives around you or whether they're sojourners with you who reside in the midst of the Israelites, if they're not Israelites, one teaching there should be for them, for him who does inerrancy, meaning for the, the person who sins, for that, if that person does something wrong, even if they're not part of the tribe of Israel, they still have this one teaching. And it says, and the person who does it with a high hand, whether from the native or from the sojourner, he reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from the midst of his people. He has spurned the word of the Lord, and his commandment he has violated. That person shall surely be cut off. His crime is upon him. So God is saying, hey, just because they're not Israelites doesn't mean they they're, that they're not sinning, right? We talked, I think, a little bit before about when Cain murders Abel, even though the command not to murder doesn't come until the time of Noah, it was still wrong. It was still wrong to do, right? So just because the law is for the Israelites doesn't mean that other people aren't doing wrong, aren't, aren't erring, doing, doing an errancy, right? As it says in the text. And it says, if, if the person does it with a high hand, in other words, if the person does it on purpose, if the, if the person does it to get the upper hand, right? To kind of say, ah, I'm above all that. That's your nonsense. I'll do what I want, right? Okay, if the person does it with a high hand, then the Lord says, hey, that person has spurned my commandment, then you need to cut him off from the community because he's violated my command. His crime is upon him. So now we go on verse 32 here with a story. And the Israelites were in the wilderness and they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Now, has the command to rest on the Sabbath already been given. Yes, it's part of the Big Ten, right? Started the top 10 commandments. And that was given to Moses way back in Exodus 20. It's given to the people shortly after that. It's given on a second set of stone tablets after Moses breaks the first set. Everybody knows, right? So the person who is doing this is somebody who knows, but he's going to do what he wants to do anyway, okay? And those who found him gathering wood brought him forward to Moses and to Aaron and to all the community. And they placed him under watch, for it had not been determined what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man is doomed to die. Let all the community pelt him with stones outside the camp. And all the community took him outside the camp and pelted him with stones, and he died, as the Lord had charged Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelites, and you shall say to them that they should make them a fringe on the skirts of their garments for their generations, and place on the fringe of the skirt an indigo twist. And it shall be a fringe for you, and you shall see it and be mindful of all the Lord's commandments, and you shall do them. And you shall not stray after your heart and after your eyes, after which you go whoring or prostituting, possibly your, your uh, translation may tone it down a little bit, so that you will be mindful and do my commandments, and you shall be holy to your God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to become your God. I am the Lord, your God. Okay. So you have God in uh, ver chapter 15 saying, okay, you're gonna, when you get in the promised land, you're going to do this. And here are some um, observations to keep. And here's some offerings to do. And here's what to do if somebody sins. Then you have a story kind of right in the middle of it. And then it picks back up with, okay, now I want you to wear this fringe on your tassels. And remember how we looked at some things in the story of Noah, possibly things you never really connected before, but when you read it as a book, when you read it like a story, oh, it starts to make some sense. Here's something Noah does. Here's what God says right after that. Here's what Noah does right after that. Oh, 
I see actually these kind of go together where they appeared to not go together before. Again, the story of Nadab and Abihu, if you take that story by itself alone, it kind of is a head scratcher sometimes. But if you look at what happens right after that, okay, take their bodies out. Apparently they were naked. Okay, no more drinking in the temple, guys. Okay, apparently they were drunk. Okay, here's the new laws about the temple. And since you guys as a community can't get it together, here's all the laws of Leviticus. Let me just spit them right out for 20 chapters, right? So suddenly now things in context start to make sense that maybe didn't make sense for you before. At least I hope that's happening. Uh, not that it didn't make sense before, but maybe more sense is being made now. That's the part I hope. So uh, we look at the same thing here, right? We say, why is this story right here in the middle of all these other things that the Lord is saying, why do we see this story? Well, because it is explaining what is happening in the verses that follow, right? So you have the Lord saying, hey, even sojourners are not exempt from this law. And then you have here in chapter 15, it says, and the Israelites were in the wilderness and they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. So the language there sort of seems to imply the man is not an Israelite. So he's either a native among them or he's a sojourner among them. And this law has been given. The law is the same for them as it is for the Israelites, because what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. Right? And so he appears to be doing it with a high hand, which is what the verses before this were just talking about. So this story is given here basically as an example of the things that the Lord was just saying. And then after this story, we get sort of a remedy. So it's not a remedy for the specific situation, but it's something that God gives them. It's a gift. After they decide what to do with the man, and he is um, brutally punished for what he's done because he's done it in complete rebellion against the Lord's command. The Lord says, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to put a blue twist on the corners of your tassels so that anytime you see it, it will remind you of my law. And it will not just remind you of the law, but it will remind you to do it. It will remind you to keep the law, right? That you will be mindful of the Lord's commandments and you shall do them, it says, verse 39, 40, right? That you won't go after your heart, that you won't go after your eyes, because both of those, unfortunately, can deceive you. But the thing that won't deceive you is the word of the Lord, the Lord's commands. Remember, it's the word of the Lord that creates the entire universe, right? So the word of the Lord is steadfast, will outlive us all, unchanging. That's why this section ends with, I am the Lord your God, right? Because he's reminding you, this is the reason you do this is because of who I am. Okay, I have some more to say about that, but we will come back um, just a little bit. Um, okay, chapter 16. And Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi. So Korah is a Levite. And Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab. And on, son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. Now, remember who Reuben and Levi were in Genesis. Reuben slept with Jacob's um, concubine, right? Uh, Bilhah, mother of uh, Dan and uh, Naphtali, I believe. And uh, Levi was Levi and Simeon went in and, and had revenge on the, the people that raped their sister Dinah. So, kind of showing you that there's coming from these tribes might be sort of a little bit of foreshadowing. Okay. That's particularly about Reuben. Uh, so these guys, Korah and Dathan and Abiram took up, they rose before Moses and 250 men of the Israelites, community chieftains. These are leaders, persons called up to meeting men of renown. And they assembled against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have too much. For all the community, they are holy. In other words, hey, how come you're getting special treatment? 
How come you're getting special office? How come you're getting special clothes to wear? How come you're getting special food to eat? You have too much. Aren't all of us holy? Everyone is holy, right? Notice how every rebellion has a little bit of truth in it, right? Hey, we're all holy, they say to Moses and Aaron. And in their midst is the Lord, in, in, in the whole community's midst is the Lord. Hey, the Lord's here with all of us, what they're saying. And why should you raise yourselves up over the Lord's assembly? And Moses heard and fell on his face. Again, Moses' humility. And he spoke to Korah and to all his community, saying, In the morning the Lord will make known who is his, and him who is holy he will bring close to him, and him whom he chooses he will bring close to him. Do this. Take your fire pans, Korah, and all your community. Place fire on them. Put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses, he is the holy one. You have too much, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, listen, pray, sons of Levi, is it too little for you that the God of Israel divided you from the community of Israel to bring you close to him to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle, to stand before the community to serve them? In other words, he's saying, hey, Levi, you guys have special office. You're kind of above everybody else. So why are you making a big stink out of this? Why don't you just appreciate what you have? And he brought you close and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And will you seek the priesthood as well? Therefore, you and all your community who band together against the Lord. Notice he doesn't say against me and Aaron. He says against the Lord and Aaron. What is he that you should murmur against him? Uh, verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not go up. Is it too little that you brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey to put us to death in the wilderness? That you should also actually lord it over us? In other words, hey, we had everything we wanted back in Egypt. Not true. And now we're out here in the wilderness where we're going to die because there's no one to take care of us. Not true. And it's your fault that we're wandering around out here where there's no milk and honey. Again, not true. What's more, to a land flowing with milk and honey, you have not brought us, nor given us an estate of fields and vineyards. Would you gouge out the eyes of these men? We will not go up. In other words, we're not playing your game, Moses. And Moses was very incensed. Notice the repetition of that of that word. Right? It means he was burning up. Right? <clears throat> and he said to the Lord, that's a foreshadowing what's about to happen, by the way. And he said to the Lord, do not turn to their offering. Not a donkey of theirs have I carried off, and I have done no harm to any one of them. And Moses said to Korah, you and all your community be before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow. And each man take his fire pan, and you shall place on it incense and bring it forward before the Lord, each man his fire pan, 250 fire pans, and you and Aaron, each man his fire pan. And each man took his fire pan and they placed fire in them and put incense on them. And they stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah assembled all the community by the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the Lord's glory appeared to all the community. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, divide yourselves from this community and I will put an end to them in an instant. Now remember when this happened before, when God was going to kill everybody except for Moses, right? But this time it's Moses and Aaron, not just Moses. And they fell on their faces, They uh, Moses and Aaron, they fell on their faces and said, God of the spirits for all flesh, should one man offend and against all the community you rage? In other words, one guy sins and you're going to kill everyone. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the community, saying, move up from around the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So God says, okay, if you don't want me to destroy the community, then you tell the community to get away from them because here it comes. And Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram. And the elders of Israel went after him, and he spoke to the community, saying, Turn away, pray, from the tents of these evil men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away in all their offense. 
And they moved up from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram from all around. And Dathan and Abiram went out, poised at the entrance of their tents, remember, because they didn't want to go up with all the fire pans, right? And their wives and their sons and their little ones, their family didn't get away. And Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, that it was not from my own heart. If like the death of all human beings these die, and if the fate of all human beings proves their fate, it is not the Lord who has sent me. In other words, hey, if they just die of old age or some kind of sickness or whatever, then then, it, then, I, then I'm a liar. I'm not really from God. The Lord didn't send me. Um, but if a new thing the Lord should create, and the ground gapes open its mouth and swallows them, and all of theirs and they go down alive to Sheol, you will know these men have despised the Lord. In other words, if you see a great sign that you've never seen before with the earth opening up, then you'll know that the Lord has sent me. And it happened. Just as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and every human being that was Korah's and all his possessions. And they went down, they and all that was theirs, alive to Sheol. And the earth covered over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel that was round about them fled at the sound of them, for they thought, lest the earth swallow us. And a fire had gone out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men, bringing forth the incense. Uh, tell me again why the book of Numbers is boring. Okay, chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, that he should lift up the fire pans from the midst of the burnt-out zone and scatter the fire abroad, for they have become holy. So this is very interesting. So <clears throat> here you have these men with their fire pans, which are most likely made of bronze or gold, some kind of metal, right? And they're, they've got their fire in them. Suddenly the fire breaks out, kills the 250 men with the fire pans, because the Lord is showing his judgment. So the men are burned up. But what's going to happen to the metal fire pans? Well, the metal is still going to be left over. So he tells them, go, go spread the fire out and get the fire pans because they have become holy. So God has taken something that was being used in an unholy way, and it's been made holy because God says, uh, excuse me, I'm going to take that. This belongs to me now. This is something special for me. And so um, what we have uh, down here is the Israelites that's going on in verse six, all the community. Actually, let's back up. So we're looking at... Um, yeah, verse three, the fire pans of these offenders at the cost of their lives, and they shall make of them hammered sheets as plating for the altar. For they brought them forward before the Lord, and they have become holy, and they will become a sign for the Israelites. So God's saying, take them out, pluck them out of the ashes, hammer them out, and make it as plating for the altar. That way, anytime anyone offers a sin offering, a burnt offering, a sacrifice to me, the Lord, they'll remember this moment, they'll remember what happened. They'll remember my judgment and who I chose to be my mouthpiece. And uh, so going on down verse six, and all the community of Israelites murmured on the next day against Moses and Aaron saying, you have put to death the Lord's people. So they're blaming Moses and Aaron for it. And it happened when the community assembled against Moses and against Aaron that they turned to the tent of meeting and look, the cloud had covered it and the Lord's glory appeared. So I'm going to skip over some of this, but basically what happens is they say, get a stick from all the 12 tribes from the tribe of Levi. You're going to take Aaron's staff and you're going to carve Aaron's name on it. Everybody carves their name into it. And then overnight, Aaron's staff grows blossoms, Aaron's staff buds. And that shows that the Lord has chosen Aaron to be the priest. 
That settled it once and for all. It settled it visibly for the community. So in the same way that the tassels became a visible reminder, in the same way that the plating of the fire pans on the altar became a visible reminder, Aaron's staff becomes a visible reminder of God's choosing, God's great works, and God's judgment, right? So then we'll just kind of skip over then to chapter 18. And what we have in chapter 18 is God saying, now here's what the priests all get. So when food comes in and is sacrificed, there's portions of it that will be for the priests, and that's how the priests will eat and that sort of thing. And so there's a lot of information about that here in chapter 18. And uh, I just want to uh, finish the reading tonight by reading verse 20 of chapter 18. So this is Numbers 18 and verse 20. It says, And the Lord said to Aaron, In their land you shall have no estate, and no portion shall you have in their midst. I am your estate and your portion in the midst of the Israelites. So God says to the other 11 tribes, I will give you something good. I will give you excellent land, the best land, promised land I will give you. The Levites, I won't give you land. I'll give you something better. I'll give you myself. I'll give you me. I'll give you the temple work. I'll give you worship. That's better than the land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, so that's the text for tonight. So just a few notes, and then we'll be out of here. So we're reading a lot of commands. So even in Numbers, so all the commands are not centered around the Ten Commandments in Exodus. They're not all enumerated in Leviticus. We're still getting more commands here in the book of Numbers. As things happen, continue to happen, more commands are given. So this thinking about commands, you know, people talk about the Ten Commandments. Well, in the Old Testament, there's something like uh, 650 commands or 630 commands, something like that. It's over 600 commands in the Old Testament. Well, who can remember them all? You know, maybe if you were a, a Pharisaic student and you were memorizing them all somehow, but he, you know, even 650 commands, that, that's a lot of commands. So thankfully, we have this section in the New Testament that, that helps us a little because someone asks Jesus, what? What are the greatest commands? Right? Not that we need to ignore the others, but like, what are, what are like the real important ones? And Jesus, and here I'll read it. This is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. So Matthew 22, 34 through 40, if you want to follow along. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, this Jesus said back to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. In other words, Jesus says there's a lot of commands. They're all good and they're all perfect. And they're all summed up by these two things. This is the intent behind every command is to love God and to love your neighbor. Love God with everything you have. And the second command is like it, he says. It's not exactly the same, but it's a like it. It's, it's a lot like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so you would kind of, you know, imply from that, uh, infer from that, that you would love your neighbor with, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength also, that you'd give your neighbor all the love that you could, right? So where do these commands come from? Have we read any of these commands? Well, 
The first one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, or you know, however you uh, say it, whichever gospel text you take it from. It's, being, it's repeating Deuteronomy 6, 4. Now, we've not gotten to Deuteronomy yet in what we've been reading, but we've certainly seen some verses like this, or at least passed them in some of the stuff that we skipped over. The second command is from Leviticus 19, 18. We have read that, love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know that I read it, but we, we covered Leviticus, right? Now, Leviticus 19.18 says this, Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's that phrase again. I am the Lord. So we just It was just in the section that we just read in, in uh, chapter 15. And we see it again here. I am the Lord. By the way, this is also the way the Ten Commandments begin. So when the formal commandments of the formal religion for the nation of Israel start, the very first thing is, I am the Lord your God, right? That's the very first thing. So the first thing about commandments that we must remember is it's because of who the Lord is. All right. The do's and don'ts, they're there, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing just above that is who God is. So you'll find this phrase, I am the Lord. You'll find this phrase a number of times in Exodus, Leviticus, elsewhere. God is establishing a reason for obeying. So many of the commands in these sections relate to the pagan practices of the Egyptians from which they came or the Canaanites that they you know, are headed towards or now around. So saying, I am the Lord when giving commands, this is a call to trust, to cling to the Lord, not to cling to the past, Egypt, not to cling to the world around them, Canaan, the others around them, but to cling to the Lord. I am the Lord, God says at the end of these commandments. So the Lord says, love your neighbor. Why? Because I am the Lord. Love your neighbor because of who God is, not because of who we are, not even because of who our neighbor is, but instead because of who God is. We love our neighbors because God made them in his image. And because of that, they are worthy of being served. We could stop there, but we don't have to. We, we love our neighbors so that they will come to know the Lord, so that they can repent, so they can be saved, so they can live lives loving the Lord, being just, not hurting other people. Now, we're not responsible for how they respond, but we are very responsible for loving them. It's commands, the second greatest command, very much like the first command. So in other words, not loving your neighbor is like not loving the Lord. If you don't love your neighbor, then you're trying to redefine who the Lord is. Because the command is, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right? And who is God? That we've also read from Exodus chapter 34. God passes in front of Moses. Moses is in the cleft of the rock. And what does God say? Um, Exodus, 34, chap uh, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We certainly saw that judgment to the generations here as the families were swallowed up in the ground, right? Side note. That Exodus 34 that I just read, that happened about a year ago in time. So I know we're kind of busting through this pretty quickly. And so one, it seems like it was just a couple of days ago because it was. 
But two, it may seem like it was a long time ago because we were moving chaps through so many chapters. But basically from Exodus 3 to where we are now is pretty much continuous story with only short jumps in time. It's, it's one continuing story. More on that later. So that's why we love our neighbor, okay? Because of who the Lord is. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's forgiving, and but that he's just. Right? And that points back to the greatest command, which is to love the Lord with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that recitation, that first command, the greatest command, is from the Shema, uh, or Shema Yisrael, which in Judaism is uh, something they say quite a bit. It's part of the liturgy. I think it opens every worship service, right? And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Here's the entire Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Listen, Israel, or hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. And uh, that's one reason why I enjoy doing these lessons is because I feel like I'm exercising the Shema, that I'm trying to take the love that I have for the Lord, even with all of its faults, the, the faults are mine, right? And, and I'm trying to pass it on and say, Here, here's what you can learn about the Lord. So the whole Shema is not just love the Lord, but it's love the Lord and teach other people about it. Teach your family about it. Teach your city about it. Teach your community about it. Teach your church about it. Now, when the Shema is um, spoken in liturgy, it actually consists of three portions. The portion that I just read, the second portion is from Deuteronomy 11, and it's another section about uh, it's the blessings and the curses. Okay, if you obey my commands, here's the blessings you have. But if you disobey, here's what awaits you. Right? Then the third section, do you know what the third section is in the liturgy of the Shema? It's Numbers 15. It's the section that we just read about the tassels. Isn't that interesting? That again, it's that visible reminder, that tassel, that visible reminder to be mindful of God's commandments and to do them and to teach others to do the same. And how does that section in Numbers 15 end? The same way the Shema begins, I am the Lord your God. So again, we have just, you know, we talked about the chiastic structure before. We have sort of this story sandwich. Again, even in the liturgy of the Shema, it begins, I am the Lord, and it ends, I am the Lord. Even when Jesus talks about the greatest commands, just by referring to the commands, he's referring to a command that begins, I am the Lord, and a command that ends, I am the Lord. Commands are, they begin and end with the fact that God is who he is. We must understand that. So all three sections talk about reminding each other, uh, all three sections of the Shema I was just talking about, remind, um, talk about reminding each other, telling each other, showing each other that the Lord is our God. So one reason I've been um, doing these, um, well, three reasons I've been doing these lessons, because I want to de deepen and lengthen your understanding of Scripture. I want to inspire and encourage your journey as a disciple. Remember, a disciple is not a student. A student learns something. A disciple learns how to do something. Okay, so just like in this uh, Numbers 15 section, you're going to be mindful of the commands and you're going to do them. All right. You can be, uh, I, I, I know that um, 
David Young, uh, my preacher in Murfreesboro, talks about being probably the only Bible-believing Christian in the religion department at Vanderbilt, in the middle of the Bible Belt. He was the only person that actually believed what he was studying. And there were people that were, they were studying, they were going to become professors of it. Even his own professors, many of them didn't believe it. So you can learn the Bible, right? But that makes you a student. If you want to be a disciple, you have to do it. Right? A disciple is someone who does something, learns how to do something. And the third reason is to train and equip you to be a disciple-making disciple. Because if you're learning how to do what Jesus did, one of the big things that he did was make disciples, was disciple people how to, how to live uh, like, like him, how to live a godly life. So if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, then you have to disciple others to do the same. You see that in these, in these uh, teachings of the Shema, that you're going to you know, write it down, that you're going to put it somewhere you can see it. You're going to wear it on your clothing. You're going to have it on your forehead. You're going to have it on your wrist, on your, on your doorposts, right? So um, we see that reminding over and over again. This is all about discipleship. So if you've been learning any of this, um, then um, I'm very thankful. And I'm very thankful that um, hopefully you're learning how to read stories in context, right? So if you have been doing that, one question you might be asking yourself along the way is, why stories? So we're looking at a lot of commands now. Why not just commands? Why not just give us a list of commands? I mean, even Leviticus is not fully commands. I mean, the story, at least right in the middle of it with Nadab and Abihu, right? So there's a reason Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are a mix of narrative and law. It's because God doesn't give a command without demonstrating why he's giving it. We see that perfectly here in Numbers 15, where you see the laws, and then you see the story about the man picking wood on the Sabbath. And then we have the reminder, the, the tassels are given as a command, as a reminder of the law. And not remember, the tassels are not just to remind, if I'm wearing the tassels, it doesn't just remind me, but it reminds you because you see them. And then if a foreigner comes in, they say, hey, how come all you guys are wearing these tassels? Well, let me tell you about that. It's an opportunity to evangelize, right? Okay, so it's a visible sign. So this is a reminder of a specific story or law, these visible signs, kind of like the rainbow with Noah, story of Noah, right? So um, this man in Numbers 15 disregards the Lord's law. The community is to exact the punishment. Remember, they take him out and stone him. So God doesn't destroy him himself like he did with Nadab and Abihu. The community does it. Why? So that the community is held accountable. So, so that um, the community then has to wear the reminder to remind themselves and to teach their children. Right? The community is elevated to a level of accountability. Well, if you just stoned somebody to death for doing something, you're not likely to go and do that. And if you heard about your community doing that, you're not likely to do it either. Korah's rebellion, along with that of Dothan and Abiram, this invites the Lord's judgment for the whole community, similar to the stories of Golden Calf, Nadab and Abihu, others throughout Scripture like uh, Uzzah touching the ark in, I think it's 2 Samuel, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. And as proof that it's for the whole community, the fire pans are now considered holy and they're made into a covering for the altar. All right, this is a spiritual leadership argument. All right, remember these were leaders that were coming out of the community. They were supposed to be spiritual leaders. This is like with Miriam and Aaron before, except this time Aaron's on the right side. Remember he was on the wrong side with the golden calf when uh, Miriam spoke up, Aaron kind of, um, he was kind of wishy-washy, right? And then kind of begged for Miriam's healing. And now he's on the right side. So what happens? Moses sends Aaron out uh, with to, to uh, heal the scourge. That's one of the things that we kind of skipped over, I think. But he sends Aaron out to heal the scourge. This is discipleship. God has given Moses a role. Moses gives Aaron a role. 
So it's discipleship both for Aaron and for the community, because now they see, hey, it's not just Moses, but also Aaron is somebody of authority that has been chosen by the Lord. That comes into question in the next chapter, and the Lord says, no, this is right. This is going in the right direction. Aaron is my guy. I have chosen him just like I've chosen Moses. So the Lord's judgment is not just negative, punishing the offenders, but it's also demonstrative. It is also demonstrative. It's demonstrating, all right, as he then turns to show Aaron as chosen and blessed. So uh, then the Lord goes even further in chapter 18 to show how blessed and holy the whole priesthood is by what they get to eat and, and how they should be treated and those kinds of things. So you have Moses, you have Aaron and the priests, you have the Levites, you have the nation of Israel, and then you have the other peoples, the world, what the Egyptians might hear, what the Canaanites might hear, the, the Revrav, the Riffraff living among them, right? These are called discipleship contexts. And so I want to go right back over to the keynote real quick. We're almost done. And I want to think about these five discipleship contexts. You've got um, public, so 70 plus. For many of you, this is going to be your church congregation, uh, the place where you work, uh, your, the school that you go to. Social, 20 to 70. This is going to be maybe one of your adult classes at church. Uh, maybe it's a ministry that you're a part of, like Meals on Wheels or something like that. Um, might be some kind of missional community. Personal, 6 to 20. This is 6 to 20 people. Uh, this is going to be like a life group. So this is going to be, you know, 10 couples is 20 people, right? So, you know, five or six married couples get together. That's a life group. It's a small enough group that you can know everybody, that you kind of know what's going on with everybody. You know when somebody's missing. You know when somebody's sick. You know when somebody's going through something. It's personal. Transparent is two to five. And this should ideally be uh, two to five of the same gender because the whole idea is to be transparent, to really get down and talk about um, just really what's going on at a deep level and an intimate level. And uh, remember, we talked about being naked and unashamed back way, way, way back at the beginning of the Genesis series. That's the goal here is that you find, you know, well, one to four other people that you can be around on a, on a weekly or every other week basis, study scripture together, grow together, hold each other responsible for growing as disciples, hold each other accountable. It's not just accountability, but uh, it's about growth and it's about growing in love towards uh, God and neighbor. And then divine, that's just you alone. That's your private um, uh, disciplines, fasting and praying, giving, reading, those sorts of things, rest. Okay, so you've got public, which is the world, social, which is uh, community, personal, which is you know your um, team, transparent, which is your squad, and divine, that's just you and the coach, you and God alone. Uh, the Holy Spirit discipling you in private time. So I hope those make some sense for you. Um, those are the discipleship contexts. You are always doing discipleship in those contexts. And I have to say, churches generally have been pretty good at the Sunday morning show. They've been pretty good at the at the big room, at the at the public arena. The social arena, we do okay. We have nice programs, particularly for our own people. But we have you know vacation Bible school and Meals on Wheels and things that serve other people. And um, we have uh, okay life groups. Sometimes you know they'll be good for six or eight months, and then we won't do them for a year, and then they'll come back. And you know we're okay at that. And a lot of people in church, some of them will do their own reading every day, do their own prayer every day. But we've been really bad at this transparent thing. We haven't been doing it. And because of that, the divine thing is disconnected from the, 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 the rest of the organized stuff that the church is doing. And so it really inhibits growth. The, the smaller the setting, the deeper the transformation. And so that those transparent groups, those two to five, those weekly Bible-centric accountability groups are where the most 
growth is going to happen. And we see that in the story of Moses and of Aaron and the priests and the Levites and the nation of Israel and the people around him. Who suffered the most and the longest? It's Moses. Who's obeyed the most and the longest? It's Moses. Who's learned the most, been forgiven the most? It's Moses. All right. And who's second to him? Well, it's Aaron. Aaron's learning from Moses, right? And then who's, who's, his family's had to learn some things the hard way, but now his two sons, they've watched their older brothers get burned in fire from the Lord. Well, they've learned some things now. They've had some experience now, right? Now the Levites, they've seen some things. They're going through things here in Numbers. Now they've learned some things, right? The whole nation looks to this and say, hey, well, we don't get on God's side now. Now they're starting to learn some things, right? They're going to learn some things as they go through this discipline in the wandering period. And we see these lessons filtering down to the people. Even the discipline and punishment in Numbers 15, the stoning of, of the man, that's a form of discipleship. It's elevating a community of people to the expectations of the law, to executing the law themselves, to carrying out judgment on God's behalf, teaching observers about holiness. God takes his laws, his judgment, and his story, and he places it in our hands to share and to share with love, truth and love. Right. So what are we to do with this story? Well, we're to use it for two purposes. By by this story, I don't mean Numbers 15. I mean the story of God from Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation. Genesis to maps, as I once heard somebody say, right? What do we do with this story? We're to use it for two purposes and two purposes only. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's why we do these things. If you have discipleship and you don't have religion, then you have uh, Amway or essential oils cells or something like that, right? Okay. If you have discipleship and religion, but you don't have holiness, then you have a cult. Might be the cult of politics, might be the cult of legalism, um, might be the cult of spiritualism, new age, right? If you have um, holiness, but you don't have discipleship, if you have religion, but you don't have discipleship, then you might have a club, you might have a Bible study, you might have Phariseeism, you might have legalism, but if you have discipleship where you're learning to become holy and you're learning to help others become holy, that's real discipleship. That's what Jesus is after. That's how we love the Lord our God with everything we have and love our neighbor as ourself. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.